0: Hey, today I'm going to talk about the waterfall model and a paper called Managing the Development of Large Software Systems. I know, it sounds kind of dull, but it's actually really exciting. Well, if you're a geek like me. Hello, my name is Brian Aukin and welcome to the Python Test Podcast. The waterfall model is a sequential development approach, in which development is seen flowing steadily downwards like a waterfall through several phases, typically a requirements analysis resulting in a software requirements specification, software design, implementation, testing, integration, if there are multiple subsystems, deployment or installation, and finally maintenance. Yeah, that's quoted from Wikipedia. And that's pretty much what people are talking about when referring to the waterfall model. However... That is only the start of the story. Do we really need all of these steps? There are two steps common to all software developed. Analysis and coding. For all software developed, someone has to figure out what the problem is. And the code has to be written. Pretty hard to argue with that. But I didn't come up with that. That's all Dr. Winston W. Royce there. Hang on now. Wasn't Royce that dude that got us using Waterfall in the first place? Yes and no. It's complicated. So hold that thought and we'll get back to it. The Waterfall model has been used and modified and changed and rebelled against since before I started programming. And it seems to get referred to all the time when someone is promoting their favorite methodology. Although sometimes it goes by the name classical development. Waterfall is such an important character in the story of software development that we should get to know it better. Do a little character development to look at Waterfall in more depth. I'd like to start with a few waterfall variants that I've come across. Then I'll talk about a happy path waterfall scenario as a reasonable process flow. And then the unhappy path. What are the problems with waterfall? What about object-oriented stuff? How does object-oriented design and object-oriented programming fit in with the waterfall? Yeah, I'll cover that. And then Agile. The Agile movement really was a rebellion against waterfall-like models. And I think that it's good if we talk about Waterwheel. This is fun. This all started with a paper. So I'd like to take a fair look at the document that's blamed for starting all of this. Dr. Royce's Managing the Development of Large Software Systems. And, you know, then I want to compare what he came up with 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 what Agile has now. That's pretty much what I want to go through. Waterfall doesn't always have the same steps. I've seen several versions of basically the same thing with slight variations. I'm not going to include pictures here because they really are boring pictures. And frankly, people looking at pictures instead of reading and understanding what is what got us into this mess in the first place. Here's one. One, requirements. Two, analysis. Three, design. Four, development. Five, QA, Or quality assurance. And here's another. Requirements followed by design, followed by implementation, followed by verification, and followed by maintenance. Almost the same thing. And here's the one unceremoniously known as Royce Figure 2. One, system requirements. Two, software requirements. Three, analysis. Four, program design. Five, coding. Six, testing. Seven, operations. It's the second drawing in the document that I'm going to talk about in a little bit. That's why it's Figure 2 as a name. Here's one often drawn in a V shape and called the V model. First you've got concept of operation, followed by requirements and architecture, followed by detailed design, followed by implementation, followed by integration, test and verification, followed by system verification and validation, sometimes called SV and V. And lastly, operations and maintenance. Why is it a V? If you put step four, implementation in the middle at the bottom of the V, you can line up the other six steps left and right. And it indicates what testing and post-development stages line up with. Which pre development stages? And it makes people feel better that it's in a V shape because it looks cool and official like and it doesn't look like a waterfall anymore. However, the steps still progress with hardly any looping. So, whatever shape you draw it, it's waterfall. But before we bash on it too much, let's try to give this a fair shake. Here's the idea ad hoc software development is chaotic, and waterfall models try to bring order to the chaos. When you talk about it, it seems reasonable. First, what does the customer need the software to do? That's the collecting requirements phase. Next, you can take those requirements and hand them to someone who knows what software is capable of doing and they can generate some functional requirements. That's analysis, I think. I'm actually not really sure the exact border crossing between analysis, architecture, and design, but whatever, let's go with it. Now, the analyst hands off this list of requirements to an architect or designer or both or whatever, They come up with a breakdown of all the different parts of the software that need implemented. Then they come up with a design that will satisfy the requirements. These parts are architecture and design. Again, I'm not super clear on where the dividing line is. And somewhere in there. You come up with really how many coders and testers you need. And document writers and whatever. This is probably done partly with managers and architects or designers or leads. Bartering and bluffing and playing scheduled chicken and such. But before you get coding too much. You need to figure out how many people you need and how long it's going to take to finish. And you need a design so the coders know what to write, the QA folks know what to test against, and the learning products people know how, how to write how-to guides and user's manuals and such. And so then you hand off these designs to developers who code away merrily and eventually come up with a completed system. That's coding or development or implementation or the magic black box of on-product lifecycle charts between design and testing. Next, you get the QA department involved to test the thing against the requirements and against the design. Maybe they get started writing test plans and such early, Um, but usually no actual testing is done until the software is mostly done. Now, perhaps the learning products people got started early with the guides and such, but again, probably not. And even if they did, odds are they need changed. So that often comes after the software is mostly done, maybe in parallel with QA, maybe not. Now you hand over your lovely bug-free software to the customer. And the manuals. Don't forget those. They are heavy and help the customer feel like they got their money's worth. By the way, the more they spend, the more documentation you should write. The customer is absolutely thrilled with your wonderful software that's delivered on time, on budget, and is exactly what they need. And if they are confused about anything, which they won't be, they can just look something up in the manual because it's easy to read and perfectly matches the behavior of the software. Except that doesn't really happen. See, this waterfall model is designed to go in order. That's lovely. We like order. But requirements are ambiguous, sometimes contradictory, and tend to change in the middle of the project. And the problem might not actually have been analyzed correctly. The software might be solving the wrong problem. And the design might be ambiguous, contradictory, incomplete, and might not actually satisfy the requirements. And there might be coding errors. Correction, there will be coding errors. Actually, everyone involved in this process is human, so there will be errors in every step of the process. But that's okay, that's why we have testing. The testing will hopefully show what's wrong and allow us to fix it. But the testing is at the end, maybe months after the project started. And if testing shows that we really can't satisfy all the requirements, we might even have to go all the way back to the beginning, causing at least a 100% overrun in time and money. Well, that sucks. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention, Most of these phases produce reams and reams of documentation that most people involved never read. Some people read only once, and really no one understands. Some software projects produce more documentation than code. One of the problems with this is that it's hard to map real-world problems to software very well. Some folks noticed this mismatch and came up with object-oriented analysis, object-oriented design, and object-oriented programming. Sometimes it's shortened to OOA, OOD, and O-O-P. They look like acronyms, but they are silly to try to pronounce. This is actually where I enter the story. I learned object-oriented thinking, analysis, design, modeling, and programming in school. And object-oriented everything totally made sense to me. Analyze the problem in terms of the actual problem domain. That makes sense. Then try to describe and design a software solution using nouns and verbs that came from the problem domain. Again, totally makes sense. This actually helps quite a bit to be able to describe and design in terms that customers can understand and a translation process that makes sense to developers. Model the world as entities, as objects, and give them traits, behaviors, and most importantly, responsibilities, and describe how, how the objects interact with each other using verbs. One good thing is that it's really easy to spot dumb requirements. Like, so the bank teller simultaneously handles transactions with up to 50 customers at a time. No, wait. That 50 came from the possible customers in the bank at once, not how many are at the teller station at a time. They queue up, and the teller only has to interact with one customer at a time. You know, stuff like that. Surely these OO tools we have are better at finishing software on time that is useful. It's got to be better. So let's splice this OO stuff into our software development lifecycle somewhere, and off we go. Except there were problems. It wasn't fun. Teams would spend months in long meetings drawing pictures on whiteboards, deciding on class hierarchies, and arguing about which classes had which responsibilities, and user scenarios were drawn, with bounce diagrams and alternate swim lanes, and lots of time fighting with drawing tools to get the stupid arrows to line up right without looking too crazy. It sucked also. Was it better than the pre oo waterfall? No, it was waterfall with more pictures and even more documentation. And people were even afraid to propose changes, because that would mean you had to draw the stupid drawings over again. In the end, we really thought of the drawings as starting points for development, and didn't bother with minor updates. And eventually, by the end of the project, they didn't really match the software all that well. Oh yeah, forgot to mention that the simple design drawings that I learned in school were being developed by lots of people. And then they got standardized into UML. And UML is now such a crazy nightmare that it's harder to read than code. Okay. An asterisk here and a one over there means one to many. What about that other arrow over there with no numbers on it? And what's the dashed arrow mean again? Yeah, it's crazy. Well, if OO isn't the answer, then what is? Enter Super Agile with a capital A, a cape, tights, and a pearly white smile. A bunch of people were coming up with alternatives to Waterfall. There's a lot of stuff people didn't like, and they were coming up with quite a few iterative processes, To counter the heavyweight in the corner, Mr. Evil Waterfall. These newer lightweights, iterative development models, were all coming up with some good ideas. But lots of companies weren't taking them very seriously. I think the lightweight moniker made some people freaked out and thought it was just designers and developers whining about the work. Suck it up, people. We're professionals when we write software professionally. And people pay a lot of money to have us be able to fulfill our promises and deliver stuff on time and within budget. And we need to be able to track and control things. If you don't like it, go flip burgers or something. But stop whining. Or maybe not. There was at least some indication that lightweight processes weren't being taken seriously. But then that started changing. And more and more developers weren't wanting to put up with the waterfall BS. And the world got faster. Software projects lasting 18 months or more. And still being late and over budget and being horrible to use just weren't cutting it anymore. And releases were expected to be faster. Six month release cycles now seem really, really slow. By the time the manifesto for agile development showed up, extreme programming was getting looked at seriously. And if XP did nothing else, it got almost everyone to pull automated testing into their development processes. So the agile movement did help. A lot. I have quite a bit to say about many of the Agile practices, but I'm not focusing on those right now. I'm focusing on Waterfall. But Waterfall isn't part of the Agile practices though, is it? Well, a guy named Trek recently posted an article of what he called the Waterwheel methodology. That's when requirements are gathered, then the requirements are dripped into the development process as user stories, the development team gets to feel good about their super cool Agile development process, and then when they are done... They pass off the code to QA to check against the requirements. Hmm. Requirements, then development, then QA. That's still waterfall, folks. Anyway, good job, Trek, for posting the waterwheel analogy. It's damn funny. So, I think we should learn some lessons from all this. And I think we should start by going back to the source. I know, start. I've been talking for a long time already. Please, 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 pretty please, with a cherry on top. Keep with me till the end. I think this is super interesting. And even if it is kind of dull to you, the entire world is paying the price of people in the 70s and 80s not actually reading the paper that started it all and just looking at the picture. So where did this come from? There's this paper by Dr. Winston W. Royce titled Managing the Development of Large Software Systems that appeared in something called Proceedings from the IEEE in 1970. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. It is often cited as being the first description of the waterfall model. I've ran across many references to the paper for many years, but just read it myself recently. It's easy to find. Like I said, I'll put a link in the show notes. I encourage you to go read it as well. For such an influential paper, it's pretty short. It's only about four and a half pages of text and a handful of pages worth of diagrams. It's a quick read with some great insights into the problems with developing large software systems. And even though Dr. Royce doesn't use the term waterfall in the paper, he seems to be the first person to describe it. Reading this paper with an open mind provides a wonderful starting point for the discussion of other methodologies. That's why I'm starting here. So let's get into it. Royce starts right off the bat with that there are only two essential steps common to all computer programs, regardless of size or complexity. There's first an analysis step followed by a coding step. Remember that from earlier? Yeah, that was this paper. Further. This simplification is just analysis of just analysis and coding are all that is needed for small projects op- operated by those who built it. That's refreshingly honest. How many scripts and utilities have you written for your own use or for your team? I know I've written a ton. Any tests for those? Specification documents? Requirements analysis? User's guides? Maintenance plan? No. Not usually any of those. Maybe a bit of planning when redesigning a build system or something but usually pretty light on process because I'm the user or one of the main users and the other users in the same workspace. I'm testing it by using it. It doesn't have to handle corner case input. It has to handle the stuff I throw at it and that's it. And if it, if it ever isn't enough, I update it and expand it. But this doesn't work for large systems. What's different about larger systems? One thing is that there are more people and there's way more code than any one person can understand at one time. And large, expensive systems usually aren't written for the developers. They're written for somebody else. So the developers aren't the primary user of the software, if they use it at all. And there are specializations. Some people are good at talking with customers. There are some people with domain experience that can think like a customer. And some people who are great developers. And there are new developers. In fact, probably a wide range of experience and expertise. And people mess up if we don't write things down. So the requirements get written down. And architecture, design, coding style guides, etc. has to be communicated and understood by a large group of people. Without clear communication of a shared vision for the software, a good understanding of how it's going to fix the customer problems, etc., it's tough to get a bunch of people moving the same direction. And documentation is often leaned on for communication, and wikis and emails or and whatnot. But chaos can happen easier with lots of people on a large software project. And that's what linear models like those described by Royce were trying to tackle. Bring order to the chaos. Royce clearly didn't come, with, come up with a waterfall model. He is describing it as what he has experienced as the current state of normal in 1970. And he's pointing out problems with it and proposing solutions. Analysis and coding. That isn't enough for large systems. Interestingly, Royce comments that the customer value still only comes from analysis and coding. The extra steps are there to try to ensure working software and improve predictability in cost and schedule. He states that the prime function of management is to sell the need for these extra steps to customers and developers. Customers don't want to pay for the extra work, and developers don't want to do the extra work, but it's necessary to control things and make sure you don't end up in the weeds somewhere. I found this description of the main role of management amusing and a little uncomfortable. Here's Royce's figure two model again. 1. System Requirements, 2. Software Requirements, 3. Analysis, 4. Program Design, 5. Coding, 6. Testing, and 7. Operations. We complain that one reason the waterfall models fail is because they are completely linear. But Royce observed that the steps are not within without loops. He noted that the best projects regularly iterate between two adjacent steps. He also notes that many problems that cause larger regressions in steps only have to go back at most two steps. For instance, test failures often have to go back to design, but not all the way back to requirements. Royce's observations about the problems with this system are spot on. First and foremost is the problem that testing is at the end. Yep, I was blown away when I read that. Right there on the second page of the most common reference of Waterfall is this. Quote, the implementation described is risky and invites failures, end quote. And a little cutting, too. The testing phase, which occurs at the end of the development cycle, is the first event where we can tell if the software fits within its constraints and solves the problem it's supposed to. Any problem found in testing involves doing some of the previous steps over, with the possibility of having to start everything over, causing a 100% overrun in the schedule and cost. You've got this massive risk of screwing up and not finding out that you've screwed up until the end. How do you reduce that risk? The rest of the paper gives Royce's recommendations. He's got five recommendations. One, a preliminary design before analysis and coding. Two, current and complete documentation. Three, spend a quarter to a third of the time doing a pilot implementation. Four, more testing and more test-related activities earlier. And five, involve the customer more. Okay, this really doesn't sound that crazy. Why is this guy blamed for waterfall? Let's run through his recommendations in more detail. His first recommendation is to add a preliminary program design step after the requirements are mostly settled and solid. This isn't to design all of the details, but a rough sketch of the final product. This preliminary design will cover system constraints, functional expectations, and behavioral expectations. He also mentions designing the database and the processes needed. The early database design would inherently tell everyone later in the process the pieces of data that are considered important. How they're related to each other, etc. The breakdown of processes is a rough split of functionality responsibilities into different computing blocks. The preliminary design is also an opportunity to start all the documentation for the system, including operating procedures. Now, many of the constraints, constraint concerns in 1970 aren't really too much of a concern anymore for many software projects. Royce's constraints are things like computing resources, memory needs, processor time, etc. This seems weird when viewed from our perspective, but remember in 1970, computing time was more expensive than people time, for the most part. The best analogy to modern computing is probably something like microcontroller-embedded programming with real-time constraints, or something like that. However, many modern systems have other constraints that would benefit from thinking about earlier. Say a web service that needs to be able to handle some number of users making some number of requests per minute with response times needed to be well under a second each in order for the system to not feel sluggish. Or consider mobile applications that run fine on newer mobiles but should also work on older, slower models without frustrating users. Our systems still have constraints, but they aren't always the same constraints Royce and others in 1970 had to deal with. The second recommendation Royce had was documenting the design. Royce recommended a freaking crazy amount of documentation, even to the point of mentioning a possible 1,500-page product description that also needed to be easy to read. This is clearly nuts. However, his intent was to try to uncover all of the hidden corners and not leave anything left implied. And this documentation included operating procedures, which implies user-level behavior documentation. Here are the documents in his final system that he's recommending. Requirements docs, design, A preliminary design that evolves into a final design. The interface design. That's pretty cool. A test plan developed during the program design and updated as necessary during testing. Way cool. And last, operating instructions developed after testing. Hmm. Maybe a little bit too late. Much of the goal of all this documentation is to control downstream developers and make sure they don't muck things up because they didn't have clear instructions. However, a massive documentation backfires. It is possible to write 1,500 pages of design, but very few people will read it and understand it. Also, documentation is a roadblock to to redesigning, refactoring, and allowing flexibility in requirements and feature sets. They discourage change. This is the opposite of agility. Who wants to propose change if it also includes updating all that documentation? Well, changes happen anyway, and usually the documentation just doesn't get updated but then QA departments don't really know what to test against. And what if the customer changes the requirements? In fact, changes are so painful that many large projects have change request procedures built into the system and the contracts. This is to discourage customers from changing requirements by making it difficult and expensive to do so. The third recommendation from Royce is to just go ahead and plan to do all the steps twice. Do two complete iterations through the entire process. However, the first time through you're not going to do everything. The pilot implementation will be planned for about one fourth or one third of the entire time for the project and will go through many versions of all the steps. The pilot preliminary design will go ahead and identify the critical must-have features, the MVP perhaps, or critical path features, the hard stuff. The rest of the pilot steps can then build the whole system as a skeleton system. The idea of a pilot implementation shows up in different forms in later methodologies. It shows up as tracer bullets in Pragmatic Programmer, except that you're firing all the tracer bullets at once. It also probably was influential in iterative methodologies such as XP and Scrum. A short pilot phase requires a different set of people to be involved than in normally paced development. A very special kind of broad competence is required on the part of the personnel involved. They must have an intuitive feel for analysis, coding, and program design. They must quickly sense the trouble spots in the design, model them, model their alternatives, forget the straightforward aspects of the design, which aren't worth studying at this early point, and finally arrive at an error-free program. That's Royce again. This idea of shorter iterations being better implemented with a small team of cross-discipline intuitive people who can analyze design and code was mostly ignored for quite a long time but it shows up again 20 to 30 years later with the Agile development movement. The fourth recommendation from Royce is to beef up testing. If you do all of the testing-related activities at the end, it doesn't work. If your schedule is slipping, you'll cut the testing phase short. And there's this massive risk that you have to start over. So what's Royce recommend for testing changes? First, test plans are put in place during the program design phase before coding. Two, the pilot iteration test phase will test critical parts of the system early. Third, visual inspection should be used for all code. We call this code reviews now. And fourth, pay attention to the code coverage during testing. Do much of this before the final QA phase. The final QA phase should be the final checkout of the system, not the start of testing. Interesting. I didn't know these ideas were that old. Unless I'm really reading it wrong, variants of these recommendations show up in Agile methods. The fifth recommendation is to involve the customer early and often. Royce describes this mostly as additional document sign-off steps. However, he does also mention bringing in customer feedback for functionality and cost trade-offs. This is good. In my experience, even with waterfall-like or scrum-like projects, I've never had an end customer involved in the project. However, I have been in projects where we have a domain expert or customer proxy, someone who can work in-house and make decisions on behalf of the customer. I've even heard of people actually being hired from customer, customer representative companies partly for this purpose. Even though that customer proxy or domain expert is not what Royce mentions, it's still cool that he recommended getting customer involvement at a significantly more frequent pace than what he saw as normal before his paper. Royce concludes with a final version of the waterfall diagram with all of his recommended modifications, extra steps, extra documents, and pilot project development. His goals were admirable, and he has some great recommendations and observations about large-scale software development. However, even with, and partly because of, his modifications, his final version of the software lifecycle diagram has scared the crap out of developers for the last 45 years. Nobody wants to work like that as a developer. I think fewer and fewer customers want to pay for all that. Remember that he states that really the only thing adding value is analysis and coding. Everything else is put in place for the sake of control and predictability. These aren't bad goals, other than the rather crazy amount of documentation. The paper isn't all that bad of advice. But the picture still makes me want to run away. Royce might have been off his rocker, but he's not completely off the porch. It's interesting to compare his recommendations and his final model with practices that end up in so-called agile practices. One, preliminary design before analysis and coding. Okay, this is still a bit weird, but I think his intent is to get designers closer to the code to have more of a say earlier in the process. Not really sure where that fits in with agile, but I think it's a good thing. Second, his current and complete documentation. Yeah, that's the place where he goes completely off the rails. But he didn't have instant messengers and wikis and that sort of thing to keep people up to speed like we have now. They just had documents. Third, spend a quarter to a third of the time doing a pilot implementation. This is really splitting every project into two iterations. Where he mostly differs with recent iterative practices is the split of making the second iteration so big. Modern iterative practices say just keep the iterations the same or even make the subsequent iterations shorter than the first. That's mostly the difference. Fourth, more testing, and more testing-related activities earlier. This is conceding that testing activities earlier is better, and all of the Agile practices embrace testing. Five, involve the customer more. Seems like pre-XP to me. He's recommending that the customer make many of the trade-off decisions and do more sign-off at several stages, where XP wants the customer to actually move in, sleeping bag and all. Please do give the paper a read. You shouldn't just take my opinions on the paper. Go read it and form your own. Let me know what you think of this in-depth style of discussion on something. Also, what do you think of it being interleaved with my opinions? Comments and debates are welcome, of course. But let's keep it civil. We all care about making great software, even if we disagree on how to get there. I'll put links to everything I talked about in the show notes. I know this is a long one. Thanks for sticking around.